Welcome to The World in 10. It's your daily roundup of the biggest stories from across the world, written by our correspondents and contributors at The Times of London. I'm Jenny Barsby. On today's podcast, she's worked her way from mistress to queen. But who really is Camilla Windsor? Plus, we look at possible corruption in the EU Parliament, a story which could have come straight out of Hollywood, and how Irish really is Joe Biden. Back in 1995, Princess Diana gave an interview which blew the lid off the royal family and her marriage to Prince Charles. During it, she was asked whether Camilla Parker Bowles was a factor in the breakdown of her marriage to the heir of the throne. Well, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. (laughs) And in those few short words, Camilla became the most hated woman in Britain. In today's Times of London, an extraordinary in-depth piece by royal editor Roy Anika aims to explain through the words of some of her closest confidants how Camilla has transformed herself from toxic mistress to Queen of England. Roya's article weaves its way through the life of Camilla from her idyllic childhood, marriage to her first love, Andrew Parker Bowles, described as a bit of a rogue, to becoming the villain of the piece in the 90s, before marrying her prince in 2005. We were lucky enough here at The World in 10 to catch up with Roya, who told us more about what she found out. Well, I think if you look back to where we were with Camilla sort of, you know, 20 years ago, she had a very, very tricky time in terms of her public image. I mean, you know, the press was very hostile towards her. The public were pretty hostile towards her. She was dubbed, you know, the most hated woman in Britain by some tabloids. And now, if you look at what we're about to see on May the 6th, um, she will be crowned alongside the king as queen. And she is now known as queen. It's quite a journey. It's quite a transformation. And it's very interesting to get an insight into how she spends her sort of private time at her private home, Ray Mill in Wiltshire, and how she she's not, not at all formal behind closed doors. Roya has managed to interview people who've never actually spoken publicly about Queen Camilla before, from one of her closest girlfriends, the Marchioness of Lansdowne, who says never in a million years did Camilla think she would become queen, to a former courtier who remembers the challenges faced by Charles's principal private secretary to get the couple to the altar. Lady Lansdowne describes them as a fantastic team who work so well together. When you speak to friends of Charles and Camilla's who've known them over many decades, they tell me that that's a very special bond that's evolved over you know, years. You know, she's there for him, but as, you know, one of her friends said, she's there for him, but always, you know, slightly behind him in public. She's not there to steal the limelight, and that's what he needs. And she knows that he's there for her, and, you know, they support each other equally. And I think that's why it's a relationship that through a lot of ups and downs over the years has has survived and is still in in very good shape. Well, on Saturday, May the 6th, the journey will be complete when Camilla is crowned queen alongside her husband, King Charles. And what a journey it has been. Our next story involves a glamorous politician, her handsome boyfriend, and cash stuffed under beds and in suitcases. And no, this did not happen in a Hollywood movie or a political thriller. Instead, the European Parliament. After authorities raided flats and offices back in December last year, a handful of MEPs, those are members of the European Parliament, were arrested in Brussels. Now, they were accused of taking bribes from Qatar and Morocco in exchange 
for political favours. The events were dubbed Qatargate. Matthew Campbell, the Times Foreign Features editor, today looks into these claims. He sets out the major players of this political drama. Now, chief among them is Ava Kaili, a Greek MEP and one of the parliament's vice presidents, who was released from custody a few days ago and is now under house arrest after being accused of courting Qatar's Labour minister. Now, while she maintains her innocence, her boyfriend, Italian policymaker Francesco Giorgi, they were once dubbed the Brangelina of the EU parliament, now he's admitted his involvement and is cooperating with the investigation. So with such high-profile figures under suspicion, I asked Matthew just how vulnerable the European Parliament is to corruption. I think part of the problem is this culture of impunity and permissiveness, uh, according to uh, Transparency International, which is a group that tries to uh, fight corruption in public affairs. And again, the Parliament does seem to attract some people who are interested more in making money than in in contributing to uh, legislation. Uh, for instance, um, it's considered quite, the conditions are considered quite appealing, considering that the MEPs get an allowance each month of 5,000 euros just for their office expenses. There's no requirement for them to account for it at all. And so they can basically just pocket it and spend it on whatever they want. I think the biggest revelation in Matthew's article is that another European vice president he interviewed expects investigators to find even more evidence of corruption. He told me that he thought that this was just the tip of the iceberg and that the investigation would eventually expose other cases of wrongdoing. And he made the point of saying that the commission says it's not involved in this but let the police do their work and let's see. The full piece is available online now and to keep across this developing story, why not take out a Times subscription? In the States, there's the Kentucky Derby in Australia, the Melbourne Cup. Here in the UK, we have the Grand National. It's the biggest horse race of the year. People who never, ever bet on horses will normally have a flutter on the National. But yesterday saw the race brought to a halt by animal welfare protesters. Now, they argue that horse racing is inherently cruel, that it is unacceptable to exploit animals for fun. And let's make no bones about it, horses do die. Orla Cochlan is a spokesperson for Animal Rising. It's the group behind those protests. Stopping the race didn't work, unfortunately, and we know um, a horse called Hill 16 actually died in the race. We've had 59 horses die at Aintree since the 2000s. We've had 50 horses die this year in horse racing, and still horses are being whipped to the finish line. In the end, 118 protesters were arrested, but the race did go ahead. Yeah, delays, they've obviously, um, the jockeys have come out quickly, no parade. They have just want to get this up and running, I think, as quickly as possible, just for the horses and for the crowd who greeted the jockeys coming out of the weighing room with a great cheer and when the first horse came out as well. It's never easy for the jockeys. This has just added to the tension, hasn't it, Lizzie? Yeah, absolutely. You can tell by the way they are at the start that everyone's sort of a little bit on edge, really. So let's look at the flip side of the argument. Racegoers and horse owners are adamant. The animals are treated to six-star luxury and they're loved and they're cared for. Lucinda Russell trained yesterday's Grand National winner, Korak Rambler. 
I just say to all the protesters, come and see the, how the horses are kept. You know, you know, I came, I came from a, from a non-racing background, and I can assure you that the welfare in other horse sports is not as high as it is in racing. Um, racing is a fantastic sport. We, it's very highly regulated. They do everything. The racing surface out there is the best surface that these horses can go on. And over the years, the race has been made safer for the horses. You know, they've altered the fences, they've reduced the length of the race. But with another fatality during Saturday's event, the Times of London has posed the question today, is it time for racing to look again at the Grand National? All this week, if you've been listening to the podcast, we've been covering President Biden's visit to Ireland, a visit that felt like home to the US president, thanks to his Irish roots. But just how Irish is Joe Biden? My colleague, Amy Gill, sat down with The Times' Eugene Smith, who's written about President Biden's Irish heritage. So, Eugene, thank you so much for joining us on The World in 10. I guess my first question is, how Irish is Joe Biden? It's entirely his mother's side. Father's side's got English ancestry. He's got a bit of French blood in him as well. But his mother, whose maiden name was Finnegan, uh, she inculcated in a young Biden a real sense of Irish identity, uh, which he's carried forward into his political career as well. He does tend to emphasise his Irishness, doesn't he? Why is that? Partly it is that personal affinity with it, but ultimately he's a politician and he's not going to say anything that doesn't benefit him in, in some way politically. And there are some key advantages to presenting himself as an Irish-American. It's a little bit of identity politics. If you look at the 2020 Democratic primaries, the most diverse field of candidates in history with a lot of ethnic minorities represented, Biden was the kind of old white man in that group. But to sort of take him slightly outside the pale male stale stereotype, Irish-Americans historically a marginalised group, that added a little bit of spice, I guess, to his, to his image. And that's it for today's World in 10. We're back tomorrow.